Good morning, church. Well done. I think you guys could have gone all morning with that, right? It's great to be here in second service with people whose feet are firmly planted in the second service because if ever there was a day where you would have been at first service, it would have been today, right? But no, no, we are committed to the second service, and uh, it's great to see you guys. always love being here uh, in Monroe. Uh, my name is Dave Rhodes. In case you don't know, I'm part of the Grace family of churches, and uh, Brian asked me to come and speak this morning and always look forward to coming back and being part of the Grace Monroe family. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. If you need a Bible, put your hand in the air. We'll give you a Bible. So Luke chapter 16 this morning. And uh, as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Who are you? And where are you going? You used to know, didn't you? Back before there were disappointments, before there were doubts. Guys, back when you were a little kid and you wrapped a towel around your neck and you jumped off the top bunk really believing that you could fly because you were Superman and you were out to save the world. Or maybe when you had your Spider-Man underoos. Anyone remember underoos? You had your Spider-Man underoos on and you threw yourself up against the wall really expecting to stick because you were Spider-Man and you were out to save the girl. Or ladies, maybe you remember when you put your Wonder Woman costume on and you flew around in your invisible jet, which really was invisible, uh, and you were out to bring justice and freedom to all. Or maybe, ladies, when you put your Princess Ariel outfit on and uh, you went down the street to the neighborhood boy to try and convince him to marry you and be your Prince Eric, and now you're really glad he said no, right? And really, when you think about it, wasn't this what Halloween was really all about? We just celebrated Halloween this week, and people are dressing up and all kinds of things. But, you know, Halloween, it's not just about the candy. I mean, it's a lot about the candy, but it's not just about the candy. Uh, that, that when you dress up at Halloween, there's a sense that as you dress up, you're telling everyone, this is where my life is headed. I don't know if you know it or not, but there's been some unconfirmed research out there that basically says who you dressed up as at Halloween determines who you'll be as an adult. So I thought we could play around with this this morning a little bit. And so the way we'll do this is I'll say, if as a little kid you dressed up as, and I'll fill in the blank, then as an adult you'll become, and you can yell it out, then I'll give you the right answer, all right? So let's practice. This is a practice one, all right? If as a little kid you dressed up as an astronaut, then as an adult you became... Not bad, yeah, pilot, astronaut, or astronomer. I was looking for astronomer or scientist. I know the, the Walton County school system's a little challenged here. I'm, I'm just kind of just playing around, playing around, all right? All right, if, if as a little kid you dressed up as a pirate, then as an adult you'll become a lawyer. A lawyer is what we were looking for uh, there. Uh, if, as a little kid, you dressed up as Pinocchio, then as an adult, you'll become politician. a politician. That's right. Politician. That's where your life is headed. If, as a little kid, you, just, you dressed up as Jason or Freddy, there's always someone who took Halloween a little too seriously. If you dressed up as Jason or Freddy, then as an adult, you'll become <laughs> an inmate. An inmate. An inmate is what we were looking for there. That's where your life is going. If as a little kid you dressed up as a redneck, then as an adult you'll become 
a NASCAR fan, NASCAR fan, uh, that's where you're going. If as a little kid, you dressed up as an Ole Miss football player, if you dressed as an Ole Miss football player, then as an adult, you'll become <laughs> middle management. You'll always be pretty good, but never go all the way. Just hanging out right there at middle management. That's important for next week. And finally, if as a little kid you dressed up as a Star Wars character, then as an adult you'll become an adult who dresses up like a Star Wars character. We've all, we've all seen these people. <laughs> a little fun in light of Halloween this week, but really just want to bring up those two big questions. Who are you and where are you going? These are the questions that inspire us in our greatest moments and haunt us in our darkest moments. And this morning, we're going to open up Scripture and hear a parable, a story that Jesus tells that challenges us right at the base of who we are and where we're headed. We're in Luke chapter 16, and to be honest with you, the passage that we're going to read today is one of the most difficult and debated passages in all of Scripture. In the lectionary, whenever this passage comes up, it's referred to as Associate Pastor Sunday because the lead pastor always happens to be out of town <laughs> when it comes time to preach this passage. Now, I didn't get assigned this. Brian didn't assign this to me, but he is out of town. I chose it, all right? So I'll just go ahead and say I chose it. But it's a passage that, honestly, I've been looking at for 30 years and still don't feel like I'm at the bottom of. But I want to open it up for us today to hopefully let it challenge us into some significant things and in some significant ways. So this is the story, beginning in verse 1, that Jesus tells. He said to his disciples, it says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting, and you might want to circle that word, wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And if you're reading this in the Greek, it's, it's kind of like light bulb moment here in verse 4. Light bulb moment, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people will receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Here's a big verse. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's why this is so difficult. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may receive, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? Here's the big verse. No servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will, uh, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So it's a, it's a difficult passage. And the picture that we see here is pretty dark. The, the picture that Jesus gives us, the story, is a story of a master who has a business that he places a manager in charge of. And the manager is running the day-to-day, but the story is told that the manager is wasting the master's money. That word wasting there is the same word used to describe what the prodigal son does with his dad's money just a chapter earlier. So what we have here is a picture of the prodigal manager. And his wasteful spending is actually threatening the entire community. You got to get this picture. You got to remember this is a, this is a picture of a community that has a kind of communal economy because it's like a small town that has one big business in it. And everyone's kind of dependent upon the business and so when the man, manager is wasting the money, he's actually putting the whole town at risk. And so people begin to go to the owner, the master and give reports and the the picture here is that He calls the manager in, and he's like, I've been getting reports from everywhere about you wasting the resources. And he summons him in to give an account. And in this moment, when the master asks for an account from the manager, the manager is astonishingly silent. It's as if the facts are on the table. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Master looks at him and says, you're fired. But as he fires him, he also gives him a moment of grace. Because it's not leave now. It's go put the books in order, and then you're done. And it's in the pause and in the mercy and in the grace that the manager who's in the middle of an identity crisis, not knowing now who he is or where he's going, looks around and says, I can't dig. I'm not strong enough. I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? Light bulb moment. Here's what I'll do. And so he, like the master has summoned him, starts summoning in all of the debtors. And you got to remember, the one thing that this manager never does in the parable is manage anything. Because he summons him in and he says, how much do you owe? He should know. He's the manager. (laughs) How much do you owe? Oh, 100 measures of wheat. All right, strike it down and make it 50. How much do you owe? 100. Strike it down and make it 80. And he leverages in this moment thinking, if I give to these people, then maybe they'll welcome me into their house. He's trying to create a different future. Have you ever noticed it's always easier to be generous on the company credit card? But the master comes in and sees what he's done. And the shock of the parable is he says, well done. 
I mean, the guy's been living in a win-lose economy where he's the only one who's winning and everyone's losing around him. But in this moment, he stumbles into a win-win-win economy where the debtors win because their debts are relieved. He wins because maybe he'll have a place to stay. And the master wins because now the master looks generous. And in fact, he kind of tricks the master. He puts the master in a weird situation where the master has to go along with the plan because if he doesn't and says this guy has no authority to even do that, he looks stingy so to protect his honor, the master is now stuck in a moment where it's almost like he looks and winks at the manager and says you got me well played and it's in this moment that Jesus looks at his disciples and says guys there's something you need to learn from this story and it's shocking isn't it that Jesus would use this unlikely source to teach his disciples about how to follow God. And the question for you and I is, what in the world is going on here? And and we have to remember as we get started that a parable is not an allegory. An allegory is a story where there is a one-to-one correlation between people in the story and people outside the story. In other words, what I'm saying is not every parable is the master God. Like, God is not the unjust judge in the parable of the unjust judge. But as Jesus tells a story, he's using stories to highlight truths about a different kind of kingdom. Now, it is true, there are some parables that are allegories. There are some parables where there is the one-to-one correlation. There's sometimes that Jesus uses an allegorical approach to interpret parables, but not all parables are allegories. In fact, Warren Wearsby, when he talks about a parable, says, here's the way that you interpret a parable. A parable always starts as a picture. It's just a story of a guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Just a guy, just a picture, just a story. But if you let it, the parable will move from being a picture to being a mirror. Where do I fit in the story? Am I the priest? Am I the Levite? Am I the Good Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's just a story of a guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Oh, am I the priest? Am I the Levite? Am I the Good Samaritan? But Wearsby says the parable hasn't fully done his work, its work until the picture becomes a window where you see everything through it. How, what, what's it mean to see the whole world through the eyes of the Good Samaritan? So I want this parable to do the work of picture mirror window for us today. And maybe as we let it unfold, it will expose some things about ourselves and about God. And maybe if we will let it, it will change the way that we see everything. So where do we, where do we start? Here's the way we start. We start first by acknowledging that there is so much wrong with this story. The manager is wasting resources. The debts that are listed here are exorbitant. They're crushing people. The manager is at at, at best self-absorbed, at worst narcissistic. He's only looking out for himself. At best, 
his motives are suspect. At worst, they're deceitful. He calls them in one by one, makes sure no one knows what's happening with somebody else, and he's managing. And yet, in the middle of so much that is wrong, there are some things that are right, even if they're right for all the wrong reasons. In the story, debts are relieved. In the story, friendship is created. A new economy emerges. A preferred future is entered into. And a single truth is revealed that changes everything. Like I said, I've been looking at this for 30 years. And I'm still not sure I got to the bottom of it. If I had to put the entire parable into one big idea that if I could today, I would sear it into your minds and hearts. Here's the big idea. Your, my, our standard of living tomorrow is directly related to our standard of giving today. Let me say that again. Your, my, our standard of living tomorrow is directly related to our standard of giving today. And I got to tell you, that challenges me because I always want it to be the opposite. I'm always like, let me work on my standard of living, and once I get my standard of living to the right place, then we'll talk about my standard of giving. But Jesus won't let me get away with that. Because the problem is when I'm managing my standard of living, I always need more. Have you ever noticed, no matter how much your paycheck increases, you never really have more? Like the expenses go up at the same rate the paycheck does? And if I'm not careful, I'll spend my entire life just trying to manage my standard of living thing. And when I get my standard of living finally in line, then I'll be generous. Then I'll look at my standard of giving. But Jesus says, no, no, no. If you want to increase your standard of living tomorrow, here's the way you do it. Start by increasing your standard of giving today. Now, I got to tell you, this isn't like a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's not like a sow a seed in this ministry and you'll have a lot. It's not, I'm, I'm not talking about just your I'm talking about your time, your energy, your resources. I'm talking about a different way of seeing everything. But if you don't hear it from Jesus, hear it from Anne Frank, who grew up in difficult situations, and she said it this way. She says, no one has ever become poor by giving. In fact, she says, it's in giving that we discover the greatest gift. Think about that. You don't know anyone who's poor today because they gave too much yesterday. No one's ever become poor by giving. In fact, some of the most wealthy people that I know are also the most generous people that I know, and they were generous long before they were wealthy. That in the kingdom, there's an upside-down, inside-out reality that in the world that we live in says, just, just, you know, look out for your standard of living, standard of living, standard of living. And Jesus says, no, 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 let's start with your standard of giving, and from your standard of giving 
what you do and the way you posture yourself will actually affect tomorrow your standard of living. Now, I want to break this down into five different challenges that I see Jesus giving us here. That honestly, if you just take one of them, it will totally change your life. If you dare to take all five of them, it will turn your life upside down. At least it it has and is for me. So let's dive into this real quick. I want you to hear these these five challenges, these five invitations that Jesus is, is inviting us and challenging us toward. And I want them to just kind of become a mirror and window for our lives and our souls. All right, so the first thing that Jesus is challenging or inviting us into is this. He's inviting us into a different way of learning. And this comes, you know, kind of indirectly in the parable because if this parable was being told today or written today, there's no way that it would survive the cancel culture that we live in today. There's too much wrong with it. I mean, that, that's the thing that we live in a society where what we're told today is you have to agree with everything about a person in order to learn anything from them. And so if you can find one thing that you disagree with, then you don't have to learn anything from them. But here's a story that Jesus is telling. There's so much wrong. There's so much that Jesus would disagree with, and yet he's saying, guys, we can still learn from this guy. Jesus isn't afraid to learn from anyone. See, here's the struggle with cancel culture. It's not that it just stifles your learning. It's that it paralyzes your leading, because here's what happens. When you think you got to agree with everything to learn anything, then as a leader, you start to think, i got to be right about everything in order to lead at anything. Or even worse, when you start leading, you start believing you're right about everything. See, the problem with cancel culture is it only creates room for people who lead, who think that they're right about everything. And the problem is, whenever you take knowledge and combine it with arrogance, you create toxicity. And so what you do is you create a toxic leadership culture where only people who are leading think they're right about everything. Jesus is always calling us to be humble learners and servant leaders which means that we don't have to agree with everything in order to learn something. And we don't have to be right at everything. In fact, Leonard Sweet, who is kind of a prophetic voice to my generation, um, he's a theologian, a philosopher, he said, you know what? He said, I'm pretty sure that 80% of my theology or my thinking about God is right and 20% is wrong. He said, I'm just not sure what the 80 is and what the 20 is. Don't you love that? Because he's taking the posture of a humble learner and a servant leader. Now, even if you don't agree with the premise of that, I know you've experienced this. I wrote about this in the e-newsletter. Where's the weirdest place you've ever heard God speak? Maybe you were at a Coldplay concert and found yourself worshiping, and you're like, how did this happen? Or you're riding in your car, and a Jimmy Buffett song comes on, or a Khalid song comes on, and next thing you know, you're hearing the voice of God. I mean, that's happened, right? It's happened to me many times. Or, or, or maybe you're, you're in your science class and your teacher who is a profound believer in, in evolution is teaching and somewhere along the way you still find yourself astonished by creation. 
God often speaks in unlikely sources. If he can use Balaam's donkey, he can use anything to speak, right? And this is what Jesus knows. He knows, don't, don't just walk away and not learn anything from this, guys. But in fact, pay attention because there's some things that you need to learn about God from this unlikely source. It's a different way of learning. Number two, not just a different way of learning, but a better way of living that he's inviting them into or challenging them with. Do you know it's possible to waste your life just using your resources to make you more comfortable? Jesus uses the story where a guy stumbles in to a different way of life to remind us that the resources that we have today aren't built to just make us more comfortable, but are, are built to make a better future for others. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying is, you don't have to live your life just trying to get, 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 but instead, a better way to live is to give, give, give. Now, again, guys, I got to tell you, this challenges me. I was a business management major in college, doing business before I got into ministry. And this is, this is difficult because here's my normal mentality. I want to live my life so strategically that I don't need provision from anyone. But here, God calls me to live my life so generously that he must be my provider. Let me say that again. I want to live my life so strategically that I don't need provision, but God calls me to live so generously that he has to be my provider. What would it look like if the way that you handled everything you had actually relied on God being your provider? And instead of just trying to grab hold and get, 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 you decide to give. Now, if you don't want to learn it from Jesus, you can learn it from the business world. Turns out, giving is good business. Literally, you could do a Google search when you get home today, do business and giving, and you'll see hundreds of articles written by incredible business leaders who know that part of what it means to create an economy is to be a first giver. The giving actually is good business, but you don't take it from the business leaders, take it from the medical professionals who actually will tell you, in giving, you do something healthy, you do something good for your physical body, that when you give, something happens biologically in you that is good for you. But even if you don't agree with it, I know you've experienced it. You experience it as an adult every Christmas. Because you're not getting any gifts, especially if you're a dad. You're not getting anything, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, Kim and I have always had this agreement where we're buying for the kids, and we say we're not buying anything for each other. And what that means is I still have to buy for her, right? <laughs> Dad's the only one in the room with no gifts. <laughs> but nothing feels better than the moment your kids open up a gift they've wanted for such a long time, and you've been able to give that. Turns out it actually is better to give than to receive. It's a different way of learning, a better way of living. Number three, a divergent economy 
to be invested in. The light bulb moment for the guy here is that he's going to leverage his master's generosity to create a future. And so he calls people in and he, 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 he lets go of debt. He gives. And his hope is, if I give, then they'll receive me into their home. The economy that he stumbles into is a give-receive economy. And it turns out this is the economy of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Some of the very first words that God says is, I give you every seed-bearing plant for food. That God, at the beginning of everything, was the first giver, living in generosity, and he gives to man and woman, and they receive. But he also invites them to give back obedience and worship, and in a certain way, he receives. So the economy of Eden is the economy of give-receive. And if you read it, especially even in the Hebrew, the, in the words there, there's this idea that as God gives, a man receives, a man receives, uh, gives, and God receives, that there's enough in the garden that as that would continue to multiply, literally, the garden would be multiplied all over the earth, and there's a sense where there will always be enough. That, that the Eden is a place of abundance where people are freely called to give and receive and to receive and give. And this is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's the economy. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve introduce a different economy when instead of giving and receiving, they take and eat. And in that moment, the take and eat economy comes into competition with the give-receive economy. And to put it mildly, these two economies have been at war ever since and I know you feel that here in Walton County I know I feel it in Gwinnett County where it feels like here in the Atlanta area you're always trying to keep up with the Joneses and I feel that anxiety of I don't want to be left behind I need to take and eat not give and receive. To put it, put it in a picture, it, it, it's like life is a game of spoons. You guys remember the spoon game? Now, this is not the kind of spoon you play the spoon game with. This is bigger so that you could actually, you know, see it from stage. But if you remember the spoons game, you remember what you do is you put one less spoon than people around the table, and you give everyone four cards, and the idea is who can be the first to get four of a kind? And so everyone's got four cards, and the dealer picks up a fifth card, and if it can help them, they keep it, and they discard, so that the other person gets a fifth card, and it goes around the table like that, and the first one who gets four of a kind, what they do is they grab a spoon, and when they do, there's a run on spoons where everyone's trying to grab a spoon, because you don't want to be the only person at the table without a spoon, because then you're out. If you haven't played spoons, I know you've played musical chairs where you walk around, there's always one less chair than people there, and the music is playing, you're walking around the chairs, and when music stops, everyone's looking for their seat, right? Because you don't want to be the only person without a seat. Now, it's one thing when kids play the spoons game, but when adults play it, it gets violent. <laughs> Grown men, like, wrestling on the floor for their spoons so they're not out. 
Well, here's the picture for us this morning. I wonder how much of our time, energy, and resources are spent just trying to make sure in our life that we have a spoon. How much of our time, energy, and resources are built just trying to make sure I have a chair, I have a seat. But what if this morning God could open up your eyes to say that at his table there's always a chair with your name on it. That in his kingdom, even if we run out of spoons, God has forks and knives because steak was better eaten with forks and knives anyway. How would that kind of mindset totally change everything for you? Where you didn't have to spend your life just hoping to get a spoon. Where you were taking and eating. And what if you actually entered into a different economy that started by giving and receiving? And the thing is, no matter how much you make, how much or little, you can enter into this. In fact, I saw it maybe at its best in Lima, Peru. I was there with Compassion International. Compassion International is a ministry that releases children from poverty in Jesus' name. And I remember being there and seeing these kids who didn't have hardly anything and going home with one of them to their parents. And I guess you'd call it a home. It was really like a tent. There's no running water. Literally, a truck comes by and there's a barrel that they put water in. There's no beds on the floor. There's places where cots were at that were rolled up. And I'll never forget being welcomed into this home and them serving us pie. It had to be a week or month's worth of work and wages for them. And just being caught in the, in the give-receive economy. Do you know it's possible to have everything and have nothing at the same time? And it is also possible to have nothing and everything at the same time? I remember listening to Nellie. She was a, 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 a child who was in poverty in Kenya, and she was sponsored by Compassion, and now she represents Compassion. She was telling the story of her life, and as she told the story of her life, she said, Compassion met her in her poverty, and he said, it didn't change, she didn't, it didn't change things automatically, but there, were, there was a moment where she was still living in poverty, she said, but the poverty no longer lived in me. I wonder how many of us have hundreds of thousand dollars in the bank, but the poverty still lives in us, so everywhere we go, we're in a scarcity mentality just trying to make sure we have a spoon. And part of what the gospel wants to do is to say you can have nothing and have everything at the same time because when you enter into the give-receive economy, when you learn to give it all, You become the kind of person that God can entrust it all with. I want to be the kind of person that God can entrust. That's what it says here. It says anyone who's been faithful with little can be faithful with much. He says, how are you going to handle the greater things if I can't trust you even with worldly wealth? Oh, this is way more than financial. God's economy has financial implications, but it's way more than financial. There are 
bigger things, better things, greater things that he wants to entrust, but he can't entrust them to those who take and eat, only to those who give and receive. You can be really wealthy and rich in this room, and the poverty still live inside of you. And you could look poor in this room and have everything you need to carry out the bigger and better things that God has for you. It's a different way of learning, a better way of living, a divergent economy to be entered into, and number four, a new community to be formed. The divergent economy creates a new community. The give-receive here creates friendship. In fact, Jesus says it in case we miss it in the story. He says, use worldly wealth to buy friendship. That the new economy creates the new community. In other words, generosity always creates community. Selfishness always corrupts community. In other words, you've never stopped being friends with someone because they were too generous. Have you? But every day, friendships and relationships and businesses are broken because someone is too selfish. Can I tell you just Again, personally, this, I struggle with this because I, I'm afraid, God, if I give and receive, I'm gonna, I live in a world where people take and eat, and if I give and receive, someone's going to take advantage of my give, receive with their take and eat. And to be honest with you guys, I have the scars to prove it. But what I've learned in following God is even what the locust destroys, God can restore. See, I may not be able to tell you how to make more money today, but I can tell you how not to die alone. And if all you're doing is taking and eating, you may have a bank account, but the truth is, at the end of your life, the best you'll be able to do is to pay for people to take care of you. So I got to tell you, man, I, I was 10 years in the ministry. We're about 25 years in now. 10 years in the ministry, looking around. And again, I was a business major, looking around. We've given it all. We got nothing. And I'm looking up at God saying, God, we are off plan. We're supposed to have 401ks and retirement, all this kind of stuff. We got nothing, Lord. We're off plan. And God's speaking to me. At least I think it was God. I hope it was God. It better be God because I'm leveraged out here on it. <laughs> he said, Dave, if you'll spend your life taking care of others, there will always be others who will take care of you. And it's just the way we've tried to live. Like, we're not perfect at it. I still got a lot of take and eat in me, but it's saying, no, no, a new community is formed when generosity is at the center of it. That giving, receiving creates a different kind of community. And isn't this exactly what we see 
happens with the gospel? The gospel, in the middle of a take-and-eat world, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. God's the first giver. In the take-and-eat world, the gospel reemerges with a give-receive economy. In that give-receive economy that starts with Jesus, manifests in a new community called his church, and what do we see in Acts chapter 2 and 4? That the church, this new community, this ecclesia, is formed, and the description is everyone gives, and there's no needy among them. And it's probably why God deals so stringently with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, because in the middle of that give-receive new ecclesia, they take and eat, and God says, no, 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 that's the biggest thing that could actually destroy the church, is a take-and-eat mentality when it's supposed to be in a give-receive mentality. So i got to tell you, no government policy even begins to work without generosity. But the government isn't where we place our hope. We place our hope in the gospel that forms a new community. And if anywhere should be the signpost of a new kind of economy that forms a different community, it's the church. This is what the church was always supposed to be. And in Acts 2 and Acts 4, you might say, Dave, I just don't know how that works. Well, actually, first of all, it, it turns out if you do the research, there's actually enough resources on the planet for no one to be in need. But even if it doesn't, you know, think about it globally, the, the idea of, of Acts chapter 2 and 4 is that in your oikos, in your extended family, and for Jesus, extended family isn't just blood relatives, it's mission relatives. In, in your missional community, in your small group, you know it's possible for you guys to function where there's no needy among you? Because you're participating in a give-receive economy instead of a take-and-eat economy? So it's a different kind of learning a better way of living a divergent economy to be invested in a new community to be formed and then number five a distinct kind of disciple that is necessary in other words consumerism never creates disciples in fact consumerism is always at odds with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus you can't consume your way into Jesus following. And the different kind of disciple is one who learns and leads differently, who chooses at the core of their life, even if people are taking advantage, to be a giver and not a taker, to enter into this economy that forms a new community called the church. And to not give the bare minimum. See, see, it's not about wealth. It's about sacrifice. And sacrifice is not about how much you have. It's about what you have left. In the business world, there's a thing 
called Quiet Quitting. Anyone heard of Quiet Quitting? And Quiet Quitting started, honestly, as a healthy check on business owners like myself or uh, leaders who have people that work with them to make sure that you're not working people too hard. The idea was people need to act their wage so that you don't need to pay them for 40 hours if they're, making, if they're, if they're working 60 hours. And there's this idea of quiet quitting, work for your wage, but do the work you're supposed to do. But in the world that we live in, that, that idea has devolved into this. Do the bare minimum at your workplace. Just do as much as it requires for you not to get fired, right? And so the idea is that people are quiet quitting all over the country, that they're just doing the bare minimum to get by and not lose their job. I wonder how many of us are quiet quitting on God. We're given just enough, doing just enough so that we don't quote unquote get kicked out. We want to do just enough so that I just kind of take the minimum standard and I can still blame my my life on God if things go wrong. I can still blame him for it. But what would it look like if instead of just trying to quiet quit on God, we said, God, God, I want to follow you with everything that I have. It's all on the table. I'm not just giving my tithes and offerings. My life, that's what we're going to sing about. My life's the offering, God. Not just my money, my time, my energy, my resources. I want to function in the give-receive economy as a disciple of you who's not quite quitting on you, but instead is giving everything that I have to you. One more picture, and we'll be done today. Um, I, I live in a house where in our kitchen we have a stainless steel refrigerator. You guys, anyone have a stainless steel refrigerator? We have a stainless steel refrigerator. They're awesome, aren't they? Right after someone wipes them off. And you know, if, if you have one of these things that, the problem is that you can see fingerprints. You, like, my wife knows who's been in the refrigerator <laughs> by whose fingerprints. Dave, what are you doing back in the refrigerator again? Frankie, Izzy. And every time you touch it, you leave your fingerprints behind. Well, what if you could handle things in your life and your relationships and your wealth in such a way that instead of leaving your fingerprints behind, you left the fingerprints of God behind with your life. I'm not fully there yet. I still got lots of take and eat in me, but I long to live my life in such a way that whatever is placed in my hands, that leave my hands with the fingerprints of God on them. A different kind of learning, a better way of living, a divergent economy to be entered into, a new community to be formed, and a more devoted disciple that is required. This is the invitation of Luke chapter 16. And the truth is, Jesus sums it up in the last verse. No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to look at your finances through the lens of God, or you'll see God through the lens of your finances. 
So you can spend your whole life just trying to make sure you got a spoon. Or you can let go. And you can enter in to a different kind of economy where God gives you a fork and knife and you leave it with the fingerprints of God all over it. This is the challenge of Luke chapter 16. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you help us see what we can't see on our own. And that even this story that you told Jesus that disturbs us actually opens us up to see the world in a whole different way. So God, I pray that you would just do your work of disturbance and inspiration in us today. That even as we worship and come to your table, that we would be reminded that the communion elements themselves are signs of a different economy where you were the first giver and we could receive. That we were welcomed. Your table was open to us to institute a new economy. So even as we receive the bread and the wine, we remember we do this as an act of entering into your kind of economy in the world. Thank you for being the first giver. And as we come to our seats in worship, we give back in a way that you can receive through the way that we sing and the posture that we take with our lives. And so God, even today, may Luke 16 come into this room as giving and receiving. Remind us of your kingdom and your economics. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.